All right, uh, we are now going to be looking at Euclid and his, one of his many works, The Elements. The Elements. <clears throat> We're going to be able to see in this basically mathematics textbook or geometry textbook the, uh, we're going to get a little window into Greek philosophy and into the Greek worldview, which continues to haunt us down to this day. If you want to believe Christianity, believe the Bible, live in light of it, raise your family in light of it, you're going to be at odds constantly with your co-workers, your neighbors, and the world, and their particular worldview, and their worldview comes from Greece. And of course, it didn't start in Greece, it started in hell, but um, it manifests itself in various places throughout time, and the ancient Greeks kept many of their writings, and, they, and, they, and they, there was various geographical and ec- economical and, and social reasons why they were able to, in Athens and in various other places, to, to really dive deep into their philosophy and into their math and geometry, etc. But this is uh, the the probably one of, if not the top, most important mathematics textbook in the history of the planet. In fact, when this particular textbook was written, all math books before it became obsolete. This book was like the invention of the internet or the invention of the printing press. But who was Euclid? Let's start with that. Who was Euclid? No one really knows. Euclid is a mysterious figure. Some people even speculate that he didn't actually exist. That he is just the name of an editor or a compiler who compiled mathematic lessons from ancient Athens and ancient Alexandria, etc. He's a mysterious figure. His writings have been discovered... Uh, for 2,000 years in uh, archaeological sites in Egypt, in the ancient um, Greek city of Alexandria, which we're going to talk about in a second. In 1808, a manuscript of Euclid's elements was discovered in the underground archives of the Vatican. That's right. Their, their archives are so big. Y'all know the Vatican in Rome, the capital of the Roman Catholic Church, which goes all the way back to the Book of Romans in the Bible. Their underground archives are massive. And in the 1800s, they found an ancient manuscript of Euclid's elements. And uh, you can even find pictures of the papyrus that are discovered in various archaeological sites of this work. Um, what What do we know about Euclid? He was a mathematician, specifically a geometrist. A geometrist? I don't know how, what you would call that. A geometrician? And this book is on geometry primarily. He was a professor and a teacher in the, the city of Alexandria, which was a, a city, of, it was in Egypt, but it was Greek, Mediterranean, Hellenistic culture. As you well know, Alexander the Great conquered the known civilized world around the Mediterranean, Mediterranean seaboard. And he, who was his tutor? Aristotle, right? Remember? He spread, one of his goals for conquering was to spread his culture. Anytime you you fight wars, you're spreading culture. Our our nation has um, military all over the world. And what what do we say we're spreading? We're spreading, quote unquote, democracy. Of course, that's not what's actually happening. We're spreading secular humanism. 
spreading uh, cultural Marxism, spreading the rainbow jihad, various other things like that. Um, but Alexander the Great was no different. He was spreading Hellenistic or Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek worldview. And one of the things you do when you want to spread culture is you start schools. If you want to spread culture, you have to indoctrinate the next generation. That's what we're doing here. We're indoctrinating you. That's right. Doctrine means teaching. Indoctrinate just basically means teaching. We're teaching you. And we're teaching you the Christian worldview. That's why we have a school. Why do we start a school instead of just sending you to other schools? Because they have different doctrines, different ideas, different worldviews. And we didn't want our kids to be indoctrinated by uh, pagan worldviews. And so we had a school where we can indoctrinate you in Christian worldviews. Well, they started universities in Alexandria. It was a university school, and Euclid was a professor there. He probably, or at least mostly, learned mathematics in Athens, in Athens, which we've studied quite a bit this year, perhaps from Plato's Academy, or for bonus points, Aristotle's school was called the... Thinkery. The Thinkery, yeah, or the Lyceum, that's right, and his Peripatetics, if you'll remember all of that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, where did these scholars in Athens learn these axioms, these postulates, these truths of geometry? Where did they get the worldview to discover um, things that other cultures never once even dreamed of? It's sort of one of the mysteries of history. And in my opinion, it, it comes from Moses. But I can't obviously verify that. But that's, that's my particular opinion as to where Plato and these other Greek philosophers got the foundational ideas um, to build on. But anyway, moving on. Um, his greatest work, Euclid's greatest work, was this book called The Elements. The Elements. Right? Why does the elements, why does this book matter? Because it is one of the most important mathematic books in all of human history. I already said that. It, by, by, up until the 1800s, every school kid learned Euclid. And you get to learn Euclid now, too. Is there any particular reason why, from the 1800s on, school kids stopped learning Euclid? Yes, and you'll find out why, why in a second. Right? But up until the 1800s, everybody learned Euclid. I asked my Persian uh, friends, the church members at our church that are from Persia, or from Iran, and they all knew who Euclid was. They studied him in school. They studied Euclidean geometry. Anybody like geometry here? Very often, no, some of you don't like geometry. Uh, it's called Euclidean geometry. That's right. And we're going to only read, we're going to read his basic axioms, and we're going to probably read a little bit of, of chapter 3 on circles and try to work some of the proofs out on the board because it's just interesting. <coughs> um, but, but the reason this is important for this class, because this is not a math class, and I don't know very much about mathematics at all, and this is a, a class on um, humanities, on theology, philosophy, literature, um, history, etc. The reason we study Euclid, at least for a short bit, a bit, is because within this book, you have what's called the axiomatic method. You need to write that down. Axiomatic method. A-X-I-O-M. Axiom. Does anyone know what an axiom is? It's just a common truth, a self-evident truth, an axiom, like uh, 
God is great. Right? That's an axiom. The whole is bigger than the parts. That's an axiom. Guess whose axiom that is? Euclid's, that's right. How about um, something, a statement cannot be true and false in the same way, at the same time. Is that an axiom? That's an axiom. It's one of the axioms of thought or the laws of thought made, made up or discovered by another Greek philosopher named Aristotle. That's right. You learned that in seventh grade in logic class. So this axiomatic method is a method, a way of discovering truth. Let's put it that way. Of being certain about something. Now, in your omnibus textbook... Um, which you don't have to read for this, it, it brings up the illustration of uh, adoption. I think this is quite funny. Is anyone in here adopted? Huh? Okay. Jada, you were adopted? <laughs> but here, but seriously though, Jada, how do you know? How do you know? How can you be sure? How can we even be sure that you aren't all adopted? That's right. I'm identical to my mother. All but identical to my mother. You're identical to your mother? All but identical to my mother. You mean in the way you act? Or the way you look? That's how I'm identical to my dad. You act like your dad and look like your mom. I would agree with that. But, um, But can you trust your senses? Can you trust your experience? Can you trust what you see when you look in the mirror? Can you truly trust it? How can you know for sure? How can you know for sure that you weren't adopted? Maybe, maybe you could, what about if you just trusted the testimony of your parents? They could tell you, right? Yeah. But how can you know? How can you trust their testimony? How can you know that what they say is ultimately true? How can you be true? How can something be certain? The study, now write this down, the study of knowledge, the study of how you can know something for sure is called epistemology. Epistemology. All right? Let's see if I can spell that without writing it out. E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-L-O-G-Y. Epistemology. E-P-I-S-T, and I hope this is correct spelling because I'm not writing. I, I usually, I see it to, to know for sure. E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-L-O-G-Y. And in this book, in Euclid's Elements, we have a Greek epistemology, a a way of ascertaining certainty, a way of discovering truth. And it's called the axiomatic method. And I'm going to show it to you in a little bit. This book was, of course, one of the first books printed on Gutenberg's printing press. Very important. And honestly, the influence of this book and the axiomatic method, the epistemology in this book, the philosophy in this book, the influence that this has had on your brain, on your television, on your internet, on your teachers, on your culture, on architecture, biology, art, the influence that this book has had could not be overstated. Very, very influential. Not as influential as the Bible, but very influential. So let's talk about worldview a little bit. All right, let's talk about his epistemology. What are some, because we've talked about this before, 
What are some of the ways in which we can know something for certain? What are some, you know, or, or let me put it another way. Can we know something for certain? Or do we have to, at the end of the day, trust? Okay, let me ask you, let me put it to you another way. What do you know? What is something you know for certain? Okay. On what do you, well, don't specifically say why. <laughs> but um, you know that from personal experience, from your senses, from what you can see, right? Um, from, you also know that from what others have told you. We know now that, that there are people, now this is a great point, there are people who no longer believe in the categories of boy and girl. They believe those are socially constructed. And that you can decide for yourself, that you can determine ultimate reality, that there is no ultimate reality to be discovered. Euclid is wrong, after all. And we actually determine it for ourselves. It's my truth or my experience and though what you see is a boy, in my experience, it's a girl. You see, what we're having here, this whole issue is an epistemological revolution that's taking place in our world. That's what's happening. Right? But what you know is from what people have told you and from what you can see with your own eyes. You're trusting in your senses and you're trusting in the testimony of others. Is that faith? Do you have some faith in your senses? Do you have some faith in the testimony of others? Right? But you also know that God created them, male and female. You know there are certain categories. How do you know that? Because you're trusting in the Bible as well, right? So you're trusting in a lot of things to come to that conclusion. You're trusting in the church. You're trusting in uh, adults that have told you things. You're trusting in your own senses, right? right? You have faith, don't you? There's faith at the end of the day. The, at the end of the day, we, we have to have faith in something. All right, and that's kind of the culmination of this class. But what are some of the other options that you could trust? What, what about this? Can you make certain deductions? Have you perhaps reasoned, well, there is this and this and this, therefore I am a boy. Can you do that as well? Yes. So reason is one of the things we can trust. Our senses is another thing we can trust. Have you ever had someone believe something absolutely unreasonable? And when you questioned them on it, they said to you, don't doubt my experience, right? You see, they're trusting in their own senses, their, their own experiences. Whereas you might be thinking, well, you're being unreasonable and reason trumps your personal experience. What about the church? Have people in, in the past trusted the church as an ultimate source of authority? What particular religion teaches that the church is, a, is an ultimate source of authority? Yeah, Roman Catholicism, the Middle Age Roman Catholicism. Good, late Middle Ages. The Bible is another alternative. Um, what about uh, the teachings of Aristotle, perhaps? Yeah, sure. That's just another way of saying reason. What about the Quran? Right? What about the writings of uh, the Buddha? Right? There's a, there are many things that people put their faith in so that they can then gain some sort of certainty. Right? And in the Western world, from ancient Athens to the French Revolution, from the Renaissance to the modern world we're living in now, in the Western world, it's largely been a battle between trusting in man or trusting in God. Okay? If you're going to trust in man, and you have to trust in either reason or senses, right? 
If you're going to trust in God, you have to trust in the Bible, right? Or perhaps the church, right? In the, in the Western world, these things have been fighting culture wars for thousands of years. It's a, an epistemological battle. It's a culture war, war. Culture comes from religion. It's a worldview war. Everybody nod your head if, you, if, I'm, if I'm making some sense, all right? Um, but in, but in um, let's go, let's move forward to the late Middle Ages, to the, to the end of Christendom. And you had a man by the name of Galileo. Now remember, what, was, what is Galileo famous for? Mm, yes, yes, uh, he, he invented the telescope, right? or he at least invented the, the, he took various concave and convex lenses and put them together to make a telescope, something along those lines. And uh, I'm not a scientist either, so I don't know all the details. But he, but he um, trusting his senses and um, reason and mathematical theorems, postulated that the sun was the center of the solar system and not the earth. That the earth went around the sun and not the, the, the alternative. Right? That's Galileo. Now, what did the church at that particular time teach? The church at that time taught that the earth was the center of the solar system and that the earth stood still. But if you think about it, in your own personal experience, what stands still, the earth or the sun? How do you know? Well, I'm standing here and it's not moving. And I see the sun, it is moving. You see what I mean? I could trust my senses exclusively, right? <clears throat> but then he gets out the telescope and he does some, some experiments and he applies some reason to it and he's like, no, actually, we're moving. It's staying still. Right? You see what I mean? Now, the church had said that the earth stays still and they had done so for various theological reasons. But it's a battle of epistemologies. How can we know for sure? It's a battle of who says what. Aristotle, guess what Aristotle taught? Aristotle trusted his senses and he taught the earth stands still. So you get to the late Middle Ages. And you'll remember in the Middle Ages, the church and Aristotle were heavily blended, right? Does anyone know the name of the philosopher? You're going to read him next year, actually, that blended Roman Catholicism or the Bible with Aristotle. Yes, Thomas Aquinas, very good. So in the Middle Ages, you have Aristotle. The earth is at the center. You have the church. The earth is at the center. And bang, all of a sudden, Galileo looks through his telescope. The earth is not at the center. The sun's in the center. Whoa, okay. So things, and then, and then you have other people making sort of scientific discoveries. And, and the, the trust in Aristotle and the trust in the church begins to diminish. Okay? You remember in the, in the church world, the Reformation. What was the, the cry of the Reformation? Does anyone know the primary cry of the Reformation? The, Back to the sources, that's right. Ad fontes, back to the sources. Why did they want to go back to the Byzantium text, the Greek text that had been used for over a thousand years? Why did, the, why did Martin Luther want to go back to the, to the Greek? Why did, why did John Calvin want to go back to Augustine? Why did they want to go back? Because they had lost trust in the certainty of the church. Is everyone understanding picking that up? So not only are we, is that happening in the late Middle Ages, in the 1500s with the, the Reformation, it's also happening in the scientific world as well. Following? And, and what they did is when they went back to the sources, guess who they went back to? They went back, not the Reformers. The Reformers, John, uh, Martin Luther famously said, what does Aristotle have to do with the church? 
They did not want Greek philosophy synthesized with the Bible. But, but worldly people, humanists, non-Christians, they went back to Greek scholars. And one of the Greek scholars they dug up was Euclid. All right? um, write this name down, Descartes. D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S. Descartes. René Descartes. And his years are 1596 to 1650. You see, it's right around the time of the Reformation. Things are, there's an upheaval, a cultural revolution taking place, an epistemological revolution taking place. The reformers are going back to the, to the Greek, and the humanists are going back to the Greek text of the Bible, and the, and the humanists, the secularists, are going back to the ancient Greeks, like Euclid, Descartes, D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S, born in 1596. Now, here's where it gets interesting. When Descartes went back to the Greeks, no longer trusting in the certainty of the church or of even Aristotle, right? When he went back to Euclid, he found in Euclid the axiomatic method. All right? He believed, basically, all right, well, let me show you some of, these, some of these axioms. Let me pull it up here. Axiom one. You don't have to write these down, but listen carefully. I want you to follow this train of thought. Things which are equal to the same thing are also equal to one another. Is that true? Mm-hmm. If A equals B and C equals B, then A equals C. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Do we need to prove that or we all just know it's true? Mm-hmm. We kind of just know it's true. But what are we trusting in to know? Our own reason, that's right. We're trusting in our own reason. Right? Which there's a lot of assumptions there, right? How do we know we're not all insane? How do we know that this is not all just some sort of dream? Right? You see, we're trusting ultimately in man or in reason. Now, we as Christians know that God gave man reason. So as we trust in our reason, we make sure we subject it to the Bible. Because we ultimately trust in the Bible. Make sense? But Descartes is looking at Euclid and he's saying he has all these axioms. Here's another one. If equals be added to equals, the wholes are equal. Here's another one. The whole is greater than the parts. You've heard these things before. Descartes says this. This is revolutionary. He says, if we can find ultimate truth in math, if we know for certain 2 plus 2 equals 4, and Euclid did it. He discovered it. He found these axioms, okay, and then he built on top of them. You understand what I mean by that? Now, we're not mathematicians, so it's very complicated. But if he has certain axioms that are absolutely true, they don't have to be proven, then he could build on top of that. This whole book is basically him building on, on top of these axioms. A equals B, and B equals C, therefore A is equal to B. And then he says, okay, that's true, then chapter, then he goes to the next page. If that's true, then this is true, then he builds on that. Then this is true, then this is true. And he builds all the way up into having what we call geometry. Right? If he discovered geometry with his reason, Descartes reasoned, right? what if we could do that in politics? What if we could do that in philosophy? What if we could do that in ethics or morality? What if we could find, if we could find the axioms in all these various fields, then we could build on top of those axioms and we could finally know for certain how to run a country, right? Where this, how, to, how to create a just society. You understand what I mean? 
And so he needed, Descartes needed to have an axiom. He needed his first axiom. And this is what he did. He said, well, I think I'm thinking right now. Am I thinking? Well, uh, well, even if I doubt that I'm thinking, doubting is thinking, isn't it? So I know for sure I think. Let me try that one more time. All right. Are you thinking right now? But now I want you to doubt if you're thinking. Oh, but when you doubted, what were you doing? Therefore, you're thinking. Okay, we have an axiom. It's proven. We don't have to prove it. We all just know it's true. And if I'm thinking, then there must be an I. Then I exist. See how he's building his axioms. This is what philosophers do. Now, he's not doing it in the realm of geometry. He's doing it in the realm of philosophy. And he comes up with the famous statement. Does anyone know it? I think, therefore I am. And from that axiom, Descartes builds his entire philosophy. And they're doing it in all sorts of sciences. They are at the end of Christendom and the age of the Enlightenment. You've heard that before? It's there with rebirth, the rebirth of Euclid and, and the ancients, the Greeks, the school of Alexandria, the school of Athens, the academy, the Lyceum. It's in the rebirth of the Greeks that you have the early stages of the Enlightenment. Finally, we are going to be enlightened. And you have people like Isaac Newton discovering calculus and Galileo, right? And Thomas Hobbes applying this axiomatic method to political theory. Right? You have all of this stuff happening. Everyone following so far? This is why the heights of the, of the Enlightenment, you have the French Revolution where they, they kill all the priests of Notre Dame and they rename it the Temple of the Goddess Reason. Right? Did y'all know that happened? That's right. Y'all know what Notre Dame is. Of course, of course. All right. Now, is Euclid intelligent? Yes, he's very brilliant. Are these axioms, as far as we know so far, true? Is geometry real? Did Euclid discover it with the help from, from his friends? Yes. Now, how can that be if he's a pagan? Because God has grace for all people, even non-Christians too. They are smart too, and they discover things too. Make sense? Now, and, and, and geometry is God's truth, right? And if he did discover geometry, it's only because he had some true things to work with. Make sense? All right. Well, good. So now let's let's move on because this the story gets a little bit um, uh, it, it gets good from here. All right. Fast forward to the 19th and 20th century. Now, we fast forward to the 1800s. This is where it gets good. This is why our world is in upheaval right now. Revolution everywhere. Everything that you see, the reds and the blue states, right? Trust science, trust religion, masks, COVID vaccines, uh, my truth, your truth. All of this goes back to this. In the 1800s, a, a, a mathematician discovered that one of Euclid's axioms weren't true. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? 
Descartes had used the Euclidean method, the axiomatic method. So in many other scholars birthing the Enlightenment, trusting that with reason we can climb ourselves up into heaven, we can discover ultimate truth, we can finally know that we know that we know because we think it. But then a few years go by in the 1800s and someone found out that one of the axioms, just one, wasn't true. I think it was like the ninth one or something like that. And, and what that particular person did was they put the opposite of it. And they began to build on it. And they built a whole new geometry. They built a whole new math. It's pretty cool, huh? And it actually turned out to be better. A better description of our world. As time went by, later in the 1900s, a man by the name of Albert Einstein, have you heard of him? He took this quote-unquote new geometry, this new math, and he developed his theory of relativity. Does anyone know it? Yeah, that's right. And, and all of a sudden, boom, we have this revolution in math. They're working with a, a whole other structure now. Euclid is out. The new is in. But you see the epistemological doubt. Now people are doubting. In the late Middle Ages, they're doubting the church, right? But now they're doubting Euclid. They're doubting reason. They're doubting reason. Their God of reason had promised, promised to, to empower them to build a, a beautiful and a just society, to discover truth, to build heaven on earth. And their God of reason went tumbling down and was proven to be untrustworthy. Not a, not a faithful God couldn't deliver on his promises. So now what do we do? That is in the 1800s, I would say that is the benchmark for the birth of what we call um, postmodernism. All right. So if you don't have reason, though, what do you have? Right? If you don't have reason and you can't trust reason and the axiomatic method, what can you trust? Well, go back to the, the competitions between the Lyceum and the Academy. What can you trust? Anyone? Can you trust your senses, maybe? Your own personal experience? Okay, sure. Now you see what's happening in our world. Have you ever heard the phrase someone say to you, um, oh, that's your truth, I have my truth? See, they don't believe that there is truth. That re- they don't believe reason can discover truth. What they believe now is it's my personal experience. You see how what's happening there? All right? Now, another, another thing that I forgot to mention that I think is important. When reason was elevated as the way to discover ultimate truth, what do you think happened to faith? Faith became the red-headed stepchild. Faith became what you do for your... Um, it's an expression meaning faith became... Uh, mistreated and abused like Cinderella. Faith became the, um, you know, good for grandmas and, and superstitious people, but not for anyone who really wants to search out the truth. Have you ever heard someone say, trust the science? Or science this, science that? I had someone this morning mention to me, you're, you're ignoring science and its many advances. See, this is a modernist. This is someone who has that enlightenment mindset 
that believes with reason, with science, we can discover ultimate truth. And me in the realm of religion and faith is a, a doofus that needs to just, you know, do Bible studies for grandmas and superstitious people. You see the difference there? But then when reason is thrown out now, it's personal experience. It's my truth, your truth. Don't doubt my experience. Right? Then that happens. So we have in our world right now this battle going on between the modernists who trust in reason. They're usually in the math departments. And the postmodernists who, who don't believe in reason and don't believe there's ultimate truth. They're, they're in the English departments in universities. Trust me. Right? But then you have, not even in that fight, you have biblical Christians who don't trust ultimately in science or personal experience, but trust in the revealed Bible. Understand what I mean? All right. Now let's go on and let's discuss the first axiom. Uh, We're not going to look it up in the book, but the first axiom is the whole is greater than the part. That's just, well, that's one of the first axioms. I think that's like the fourth or the fifth axiom. Let's think about this. If that's something we discover through reason, or we know it from reason, it's self-evident, right? What does faith have to do with it? See if you can figure this out at this point. He says, my first axiom is the whole is greater than the part. This has nothing to do with faith. We begin with reason. But does he prove that? He doesn't prove it. How can he be certain? What do we call the thing that we have when we're not certain? When we just take it for granted. We call that faith. Right? See, that's, that's um, as Christians, you need to understand that the Euclidean project, the axiomatic method, it's reason, but it's reason built on what? Faith. That's right. The reject reason and trust personal experience. Trust your senses. Believing is, uh, is uh, or seeing is believing. That's based on what? That's also based on faith. And when you, when you read the Bible and it says, I'll give you an axiom. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. To receive that is to have faith. That's right. See, all of these various worldviews, they are all built on Faith. Faith isn't something, something just for superstitious people and grandmas. Everyone has faith. Dr. Fauci has faith. His faith is in what? Science and government. That's right. right. I have faith. We all have faith in something. And everything we reason at the end of the day is based on that. Make sense? All right. So, based on everything we've said, I want you to tell me, see if you can figure this out. If reason is out, what we trusted in for so long was the ultimate source of truth, and his axioms were wrong, is 2 plus 2, does it equal 4? Can you be certain? What if for me and my truth, 2 plus 2 equals 5? That's right. Oh, well, are you a modernist or a postmodernist? Or are you a Christian, right? Now, let me just show you what ends up happening. Because they rejected reason and they rejected math and they rejected ultimate truth, they begin to think, well, what was the, what 
was the point of all of this reason, this Greek philosophy. And one of the conclusions is that it was used as a tool of domination of other nations. That's right. And that reason and math, 2 plus 2 equals 4, is now actually not absolutely true. It's a social construct used to dominate people of other races. Right? And that's why you have things like uh, some people saying 2 plus 2 equals 4 is racist. And that it can be 2 plus 2 equals 5. Or you have things like black theology and white theology. That theology is not something we have certainty in through faith in the scriptures. It's something that we created out of our own experience as a tool of domination over others. Right? It gets complicated, but that's the postmodernist worldview. Right? Um, how can we get off of this train going back and forth from reason and experience? How can we get off this train? Anyone want to know? How's the West going to be saved from civil war? Because epistemological wars always lead to civil wars. How can we... The only way we can get off this train is to stop having faith in man, right? And instead have faith in the Bible. Make sense? All right. All right, we're going to be done for today. We're going to look at some of the axioms on the board.